Well, welcome back into the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week. Tremendous opportunity as we celebrate this time of our Christian calendar, which we are talking about Pentecost, which I mentioned on last week's episode. It's very fitting to have on a guest who has a lot of experience in the ministry. But before I get there, I just want to say thank you for the continued support, continued reviews, feedback, likes, etc. Again, we are available on multiple platforms for your convenience, and through your prayers, your support, your suggestions, this podcast continues to grow, reach more people, and continues to talk about things that I think need to be talked about and receive maybe some, I guess, perspective from guests who have the, not just professionalism to talk about more difficult things, but they also have the experience and wisdom in those topics. And the the guests that I have lined up, again, are, are just something that I cannot wait for you guys to hear. And that leads me to tonight's guest. 35 years of ministry. I think for anyone, no matter what tradition you are in, that just begs a listening ear because that's a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom. And that's why I'm so excited for you to hear tonight's guest. Some people call them, call him father. Some call him brother. I call him my uncle, who also happens to be a pastor. So please welcome in Dr. Stephen Crable. Okie dokie. Well, hey, Uncle Steve, uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week. What a tremendous uh, gift uh, it has been to be able to coordinate this uh, with you. And for, for a lot of people that call you many different titles, you've always been my uncle. Uh, but to welcome in uh, to the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, that, uh, it's my privilege and honor. And uh, I, I tell you, as, uh, as we'll get into a lot of our, our family history here, uh, it's just so cool to um, see like, basically my first year of ministry is now officially the last year of yours, which we'll talk about. Uh, but that's going to be for those who are listening to this. Uh, that's going to be one of the, the basis of these, of these conversations is the shared bond that my uncle Steve and I have had. And the reason why I've asked him on here is to share the fact that he's been in ministry for 35 years. He is retiring this year. How exciting as, as one adventure ends, a new one is going to begin. So particularly for those uh, young, uh, young people in ministry, or even those who have been experienced, I think that uh, you will find, I think a lot of, a lot of good takeaways here. And, and if I could start uncle Steve, where I like to start off with all of my guests uh, for the benefit of others. And sometimes for the benefit of myself is, can you just share like what led you to the church? What led you to Christ? And like, how did that start? Certainly I would be, I would be more than happy to share that with you. Um, and, and it's a story I've had to tell uh, many times in my lifetime, uh, especially when I was feeling like I was being called to ministry. There's, there's a lot um, in our structure where you have to sort of tell your call story, uh, which begins, of course, with your story of um, you know, how you felt uh, called to be, uh, become a Christian. So as you know, um, um, I come from a family that didn't go to church or have any particular expression of religion or faith in Jesus or anybody else. But um, as I was thinking about uh, uh, talking with you today, um, I was remembering one little piece that I haven't always used in this story. And that is, I do remember grandma when I was little um, using the phrase, um, the man upstairs 
to uh, talk to me about, you know, good behavior and, you know, what I, I should be watching, you know, how I acted because the man upstairs, um, uh, you know, was watching. And I, I could have, couldn't have been more than three or four, I think, probably when, you know, when she used that. And I remember um, probably at that young age being a, a little bit confused by it um, because probably at the time that she was telling me there didn't happen to be a man upstairs at the time because, you know, little kids are very literal. Um, and the only man that might be up there would be grandpa and he wouldn't, wasn't there at the moment. And then I, you know, then I got to thinking maybe somebody was in the attic, maybe somebody was living in the yeah. attic or something, but uh, it didn't take me long before I realized that that was, you know, that, that was, that was like a very preliminary understanding of who God was, um, you know, was, the, was the sort of man upstairs. And, and, you know, I got the idea that there was some cosmic understanding of upstairs, um, but so, but uh, but my introduction uh, to Jesus actually came in a, in a couple of different, very contrasting ways um, that um, uh, kind of ran on separate but parallel tracks for a while before um, things sort of changed for me. So the first one was that our neighbors across the street, um, the Wiltsey family, uh, Don and Alice, and their five kids who were Susan, Teresa, Steve, Mark, and Glenn, um, belonged to Emanuel Lutheran Church on, on the Michigan Avenue uh, on the corner of Brown and Michigan. Um, I would say across from Westwood Mall, but uh, in the beginning when I started going there, there was no Westwood Mall. Um, but anyway, uh, so uh, they belonged to Emanuel, and every summer Emanuel had vacation Bible school. And every summer from the time that I was four, um, we got invited by the Wiltsies to go with us to a vacation Bible school um, in Emanuel. And because I'm a baby boomer, um, you know, this would have been, I mean, probably the first time would have been in 1960. We, they probably had 125, 150 kids um, at, you know, um, at vacation Bible school. So, so that was my first introduction to hearing about Jesus and singing songs about Jesus and, um, and you know, just being introduced to, uh, to, you know, to who he was. Um, but also being a little kid, you know, I have uh, memories of, you know, the fun parts of it, too. And, uh, um, you know, going out for recess and, um, 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 you know, coming back in and wondering what color the Kool-Aid was going to be that day. And, you know, uh, and, and playing games and songs, lots of songs, you know, Jesus loves me and um, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam and all different kinds of things. So so um, my feeling, the feeling that I had when I went back to VBS and Emmanuel every year was like walking into a big hug. It was just like walking into a place where you felt welcome. You felt uh, special. You felt uh, like you belong. You felt like, um, 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 you, you know, you were involved. And then at the end of the week, um, there would always be a program, you know, a, a program in the evening where, you know, all the classes would sing and, um, um, uh, I can remember in the fourth grade, um, all we did uh, for the fourth grade program was just recite a psalm where, you know, the pastor would say something and all we had to do was say, and his, mer his mercy endureth forever, and his mercy endureth forever about 45 times. And that was very easy for us to, you know, to, uh, to have to learn. So, so there was that. And then at the same time, um, um, when I got to elementary school, I had a, a, a classmate um, in, in school whose uh, father was the pastor of a much smaller um, uh, uh, church uh, that actually was meeting in a former uh, schoolhouse. Um, and uh, they were, um, and I got, so I got invited by them to come to church. 
Um, um, and, and that was a, a different experience for a couple of reasons. One was because I was being invited to come to church on Sunday morning, which was a very different experience for a kid than going to, you know, vacation Bible school. Um, and, and the story about who Jesus was, was a little bit different at the second church. Um, it was, a um, um, it was what I, what, what we would call in, in, in our, um, understanding of the faith, a decision theology kind of church. It was, it was that very straightforward black and white, um, you know, there's evil and sin in the world. Um, I, I can remember in the Sunday school at, at, at this church, um, the, uh, the teacher using a color wheel where she would expose the color black is the color of your sinful heart. And then she would spin it around. Red is the color of the blood of Jesus um, and white is that, you know, your sins have been washed away and, you know, now you're pure. And, um, and so there was a great, there was a great emphasis on the, the very reality of sin um, and, and an emphasis on asking Jesus to come into your heart, to be your personal Lord and Savior, and then you would be okay. You know, you would get to go to the good place instead of the bad place if you, if you did those. Um, and, um that's pretty heavy stuff for a seven-year-old, for, for a seven-year-old to have that be their introduction into, into what faith is like. Um, and I, I was very precocious that you might be surprised to find out um, when I was seven. And, um, and, and I took that, I took what, what I was, what I was hearing very, very seriously. Um, and so I came forward for an altar call and, you know, gave my heart to Christ and, um, and, uh, you know, did all the things that I was supposed to do. But what I noticed after that was that I still, I still did some bad things sometimes, you know, I was still mean to my sister and, uh, you know, sometimes selfish and sometimes, uh, you know, lots of things that kids do. And that, and that really bothered me. Um, you know, I, I felt a lot of guilt. Um, and so, and there were lots of, there were youth activities and things that, you know, that went along with that church too. Um, but the other thing was that, um, grandpa and grandma left completely up to me whether I wanted to go or not on Sunday morning. You know, the phone would ring at 9.15 and it would be, you know, my, my friend's family who, you know, who, who God bless them were trying to, you know, or, you know, reach out to a, to a young person and they would come and pick me up and take me to church. Um, and there were Sundays that I didn't want to go because I was tired or because I was bored or because I felt guilty. Um, and so I would say no. And, um, and, um, you know, I would hear things like, well, you know, you, you weren't too tired to go with us skating the other night when we, when we went skating. So, you know, there, there was a, a lot of guilt. And that, too, was kind of a heavy thing for a, maybe by now eight or nine year old to just sort of hear um, 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 and, and remember having parents that just completely left that to me. Um, and so I, uh, I, I want to say that probably... Um, maybe I went to church off and on um, um, at that church until I was probably about a, maybe 11, maybe like, you know, 10 or 11 off and on. And uh, meanwhile, the only time I ever went to Emmanuel was at Vacation Bible School, which was still happening once a summer. We would get the invitation, um, you know, to go and I would go and I and and I, I was really starting to kind of like, you know, uh, compare these two different, you know, a, a versions of what what faith in Christ was like um, um, that I was hearing and having a hard time kind of like holding them in tension. And also 
really having no idea that the Wiltsies did anything else at that church except VBS. <laughs> you know, I, for all I knew, they opened the church, you know, one week in the summertime and then closed it and everybody went home and we came back the next year or so. So um, I, I sort of stopped going to the, you know, uh, the smaller church and, and really was just going to VBS for a while. Um, and then um, I think I got into the, I was in the eighth grade at, at uh, Hunt, which was then a junior high school. And I was in a beginning band and I struck up a conversation with this girl and uh, we were talking about church and she asked me what church I went to. And I said, well, Emmanuel, because that was where I went to vacation Bible school. And she said, why well, I, I go there too. She said, if you go to Emmanuel, how come you're not in catechism class? Well, I had, I didn't know what those words meant. I didn't know what catechism class meant. So all I could think of to say back to her was, well, if you go to Emmanuel, how come I've never seen you at Bible school. <laughs> so, um, uh, so anyway, um, 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 from that, I, uh, you know, I, I, I walked across the street one day uh, to visit with the Wiltsies and, you know, to find out if they, if they went to that church all the time. And they said that they did. And I said, I understood that there's this, some kind of a class for kids. Yes. And, uh, um, you know, catechism refers to Martin Luther's small catechism. And, and so I was introduced to the idea that that rather than it just being this sort of um, you can't be sure whether you're in the right place by what you're saying and how sincere you're being and what giving your heart over to Jesus and all that that there was that there was a place for learning that you could learn what God wanted you to learn like in a class was a was a very different um, and appealing um, 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 kind of thing to me so. Um, this, it happened that, that the steps that I took to sort of start going to Emmanuel happened to be when they were just getting a new pastor. They, they got a new pastor the very fall um, that I uh, started uh, going to, you know, catechism class. And um, so I think it was on the first year, it was in the evening, it was like Thursday evenings at, I don't know, six or six thirty or something. And so I would have to ride my bike over there. Um, and one of the interesting things about that was there were several kids in my in my catechism class that I had known from vacation Bible school, and then a couple of them were my classmates from school. And I really and and I do have to say that um, at that time, and this would have been in the early seventies, there still was a lot of of academic kind of approach to the catechism and faith um, that for junior high kids um, was a little too academic. It, it wasn't quite as experiential as it is now, you know, with games and being able to move around. It was like, you know, kind of like being in a class. And so there was a lot of it, you know, that, you know, that was, could be boring. Um, but I found that I had um, classmates in my catechism class that were just surly and sullen. And I remember uh, talking to this one kid when we were taking a break, I said, why are you so different when we're here than you are at school? And he said, well, it's because I don't want to be here. And I said, well, then why do you come? Why, why are you here? And he said, because my mom and dad make me. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. Uh, the idea that, that somehow exploring faith or going through this process or even this class was something that your parents would make you do was so completely foreign to anything that I, you know, that I had experienced. It, it was just a very, very interesting concept. So anyway, um, so I was in the catechism class for two years and I, and I, I very much the liked um, uh, pastor Kaiser, who was the pastor who had, um, you know, just started there that fall. And uh, so 
you know, I learned to be an acolyte. And, and of course, the biggest shock <laughs> was going to church for the first time in a Lutheran church where, where the church service, um, you know, as you know, there's a, a set order of service called a liturgy. And in the, and in the uh, early 70s, we were still using a book, um, you know, from the 50s. And it was, um, um, you know, the whole world of worship has changed a lot, you know, even in the last 20 years, let alone um, in the last 50. But I know that really took some getting used to because a lot of the kid-friendly stuff of what VBS was was kind of like missing in the experience of going to church on Sunday mornings. You know, uh, Sunday morning worship wasn't like going to the VBS end of the week, um, um, you know, program. You know, but still, you know, so what I would say, what I would um, say is that um, I still learned about sin and um, and repentance um, uh, and the uh, place of evil in the world, but I, I really also learned that I had been made in God's image and that God called me good and loved me. And then in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, he came to redeem me and, and the world. Um, and so that was just a very, that was, it was just a very different experience of what it meant to, you know, to, to live under God's rule and God's reign and, and one that, you know, that, that fit, um, uh, fit me better. And so, on, uh, you know, so in, in, in the Lutheran tradition, uh, babies are usually usually baptized when you're a baby, and then you know you get confirmed when you're in the eighth or ninth grade. So my, my other part of the story is, it was a uh, ninth grade, and we were a few weeks away from uh, confirmation Sunday. And Pastor Kaiser said that we all needed to bring in our baptismal certificates so he could record that and put it on our confirmation certificate. Well, of course, I was carrying around this deep, dark secret, and that was that I had never been baptized. Um, so I kind of hemmed and hawed and put it off and didn't, you know, didn't respond. And, you know, the weeks went by and finally it was like, you know, like a week and a half before. And, you know, Pastor Kaiser said, you know, kept me afterwards and he says, well, Steve, why haven't you brought your baptismal certificate in? And finally, you know, I just couldn't hide it anymore. And so I just said, well, I've never been baptized. And he said, what did you say? I said, I've never been baptized. He said, I said, I've never been baptized. And then, you know, I was like 13 or 14. And so I was, you know, really upset and I'd spent all the time, you know, studying and everything. And, and he looked at me and said, well, why didn't you just say something? He said, we'll just, we'll just pull the baptismal font over. We'll baptize you just before we confirm you on Sunday morning. And I said, you mean you could do that? <laughs> you could do that. And, you know, like, I don't think he really said this, but you know, the, the you know, the, for, the, the force of what he, what he said was, well, I'm the pastor. I, I can do whatever I want, which of course sets the story in a, you know, mythical time <laughs> far away, <laughs> long ago and far away. So um, I think it was April 4th, 1971, along with, you know, nine or 10 of my, my friends, um, they uh, brought the baptismal font over and we all lined up to be confirmed. And before we got confirmed, I knelt and I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and my biggest memory is that we the dry look was in back in the early 70s and I had floofed my hair just perfectly. And when he poured that water on the one side of my head, it flattened the side of my head and and that was all I could think about, you know, how awful my pictures were going to look <laughs> because my head was flat on one, one side. But so I was baptized and then uh, like a minute and a half later confirmed. And, um, you know, I had to get a lot older before I realized that, that the 
process that I went through of being <laughs> baptized and then immediately confirmed was really a lot closer what the early church did than, you know, than what my peers um, had done. Um, and it's kind of funny because um, there was a, a, when we studied the catechism, um, the, you know, one of the things that you, you, you study is the Apostles' Creed, you know, which is a statement of faith that, you know, divides up your, your belief into three parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Luther's explanation of the third article of the Creed, the one that begins with the, uh, uh, with I believe in the Holy Spirit, his explanation of that begins with the words, I believe that I cannot, by my own understanding or effort, believe in my Lord Jesus Christ or come to him. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement. Think, think about that. I believe that I cannot, by my own understanding or effort, believe in my Lord Jesus Christ or come to him. And it makes you think, then why did I just spend two years studying? And it's what comes next that's so amazing because the next sentence after that is, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and kept me in the true faith. And then it goes on to say, in the same, in the same way, the same spirit calls and gathers and enlightens and sanctifies the whole, whole Christian church on earth. This is most certainly true. Um and I didn't, I didn't really realize that at the time, but that really, really, really resonated with me. Um, and then later on, as I, uh, as I found myself, you know, being called to the ministry of word and sacrament and was in seminary. Um, and then even once I got out of seminary and got my first call, um, I really realized that that really, that's really foundational for me in my understanding of what it means for me to be a Christian um, and a pastor. Um, and I'm thinking about that because, you know, yesterday was the day of Pentecost. And so um, I uh, confirmed my last three ever uh, young people. Um, and I used that. I used that, the uh, you know, the explanation of uh, uh, the third article of the creed uh, toward the end of my sermon yesterday. So it was kind of like an powerful inclusio to sort of, you know, end that experience um, um, where I began. So anyway, that's that's the story. Uh, well, well, I, I appreciate uh, the insight, and and, that, and fully, that's not something that I truly know. And, and every time you tell it, um, anytime I guess, rather you ask somebody to tell their journey to Christ or what, how'd they get from point A to point B, uh, depending on how many times they've told it, sometimes you get just a little more insight. And there's a lot of that that I've never heard. And, and, and maybe you have told over the years, just young enough, I just couldn't remember. But it's a beautiful story to see how seed planting and how God was working in your life at such a young age to be able to use people that would impact you for generations to come. And as somebody who stayed in the Lutheran church, certainly looking back, you could see the appreciation for the liturgy and for the process of catechism. And, and that's something I, I admire and find so much beauty in. And our, our bonding, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about when I went to Olivet Nazarene University, a lot of our, our, our questions, a lot of our, or excuse me, a lot of the questions I had for you and a lot of the topics re revolved around ministry. And I know this is something that you have shared with me before, in particular, one piece of advice, which I'll talk about in a moment. Uh, but if you could, so how does one go from, okay, hey, I got this Christian thing down. I've been confirmed. Um, in the Lutheran church. Um, I'm 
I'm going to go to college, which we know that you did. But how in the world does the Stephen Crable at that age, how in the world do you get called into ministry? Because that wasn't that wasn't what you went to college for. Well, you know, I've been asking myself that question for about 50 years now. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it is really good. Um, that's an excellent question. An excellent question. Uh, so as I look back, um, you know, if I were going to say a theme sentence to this is that uh, is that it, God shows up in the ways that you least expect, in the ways that you don't always plan, and, and sometimes over against the things that you plan. So, um, so I would say that as a um, as a young person, I always thought that I wanted to go to college. I thought that that you know that, that college would be a good thing for me and my sensibility and my and my sense of you know preparing me uh, uh, for an adult life. I, I, I thought early on um, that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I made the mistake that a lot of young people make who like school who think that means that will make them a, that like you school yourself um, will make you a good teacher. but uh, you know I, I like the structure of school. I like the dependability of it. I liked the, uh, you know, there, there was just, I was one of those people who flourished in in an academic environment and in and in the social environment of of school. So I would say that, you know, I I always knew that college, I wanted college to be in my future at, at quite a young age. What my Christian faith would mean as I grew up and how I would live that out. I I don't even think I thought about that um, when I was that uh, when I was that young, um, and I certainly I, I may have flirted with the idea of uh, um, in high school of what it would be like to be a pastor, or, you know, or to serve the church because we used to um, we used to take a trip to Wittenberg University which is um, our Lutheran college in Springfield, Ohio. And because my, my pastor from Emmanuel was from Ohio, uh, we would come down and uh, so I, you know, I, so I got the first um, um, inklings that there was such a thing as a Lutheran college and um, you know, and, and even how somebody even became a pastor. But I would say that like a lot of other people who have some uh, pretty interesting ideas of what they think a pastor is, I probably had embedded in my in 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 my brain someplace that being a pastor would it would be like being a priest or a monk um, that there was a certain classification of people and that you had <laughs> not that there isn't but the and but mostly that the classification involved a particular kind of discipline and um, and and maybe not even piety but maybe personal holiness. Um, 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 and separateness um, uh, uh, that that um, um, I didn't that I didn't think I I possessed or ever could possess. You know, we uh, often or you know would put clergy on a on a pedestal or make some assumptions that they must live this perfect life with no doubts and no questions and just you know uh, I mean it, it, it's wrong headed but you know more common than you um, than you think. So I, I really, you know, uh, for quite a few years, the, the issue of how I would live out my Christian faith um, forward into the future um, wasn't that huge of a thing for me. And I, and I, want, you, I want to make sure that you're clear that it, it doesn't mean that having gone through the process of, of, of being found by Christ, not the other way around, you know, Christ found me, uh, I didn't find him. 
that I didn't live that out in my values and how I behaved myself at, at college. Um, and, um, you know, and, and a lot of that too, um, also harkened back to um, sort of like an unspoken understanding between grandma and, and, and all of her kids about, you know, what, what she expected. And she wouldn't have used faith language or religious language or even moralistic language. But I can remember, uh, you know, from quite a young age, her talking about us knowing the difference between right and wrong and how we should treat people. And, you know, I, we didn't get lectures, but, um, um, you know, you know, I, I tell the story that, you know, when I was a little kid, um, I learned at a very, very early age that there was nothing that would make your grandmother more kooky <laughs> or angry. And that is if you were selfish, if you were a selfish person, selfish, self-centered, especially when it had to do with sharing what you had with, with other people, especially food. Um, so for instance, one of the, one of the fun things I used to do as a kid was go around and pick up pop bottles because you could get a two cent deposit and then run to the corner store and get candy. Um, you know, and you could get, you got 10 cents, you could get quite a lot of candy back in the day. And so I'd bring home a sack of candy and I could sit on the front porch and eat all of it without any problem at all, unless my brother, my sister, a neighbor kid, if anybody came by and said, oh, um, could I have a piece of your candy? In the household that I grew up with, the, the, you know, the only answer to that is, why, well, yes. <laughs> yes, certainly here, you can have all the candy and you give the candy away. And if, if you run out of it, then you go look for some more pop bottles or, or you didn't need it. Um, you know, you can probably edit this out later, but you know, you know, part of the story, the, the mythology of your parents dating before, you know, before they got married is they started dating while I was in seminary in Columbus. And back then grandma wasn't buying pop that much because it was expensive. Um, and I came home for some kind of a break or vacation or something from Columbus. And I got home and I went out and bought a six pack of Coke or Pepsi or something. And, um, and I put it on the floor in the kitchen and I probably had one. And then I went off to do something else. And your mom and dad had been out on a date and they came in and, you know, they came out into the kitchen and uh, they, and they looked down and saw that there was a carton of pop on the floor. And uh, wow, you know, where did that come from? Cause they knew grandma didn't buy it. And, and Scott said, um, well, Steve must be home. Um, you know, he must be home. So he helped himself to a bottle of pop. And, he, and then your mom said to him, well, you can't drink that. That belongs to your brother. <laughs> and, uh, and the way that Scott or the way that your, your mother tells it is that, you know, your dad turned and looked at your mom and he gave her a look like she had just been speaking Martian to him or something. <laughs> and she said, and he said to her, I don't know how you do things in your home, but here, <laughs> you know, we don't do that. everybody gets everything. So, um, so that was a, you know, kind of an interesting thing. So, um, so, but anyway, yeah. So um, I, I mean, I lived it out that way, but I, 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 you know, I went to college with the idea that I was going to be, you know, a teacher um, and then, um, and, you know, got certified to be an elementary uh, teacher and uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, um, so I graduated in, uh, in, in 1978 and it was very, very important to me because, the, um, I was a college graduate that I get a job. Uh, but one of the other challenges, um, um, for me was that, you know, we didn't have a lot of people in our family who had gone to college. Um, we didn't have a lot of, uh, and we didn't have people who were teachers. And in fact, um, I would say one, one ongoing theme in my life at, at, at very significant points in my life is 
when I could have benefited from a mentor in the field that I was thinking about more or less a mentor who could have sort of walked me through some difficult decisions. I've never had one. Never. Um, that isn't to say that God has not put in my path people that God used to point me in the right direction, but it, it never was in a, in a mentoring uh, uh, situation. So the way that that played out is um, uh, just to back the story up a little bit. When I was in just in high school, Pastor Kaiser, the pastor at Baptizing Confirm Me, left Emmanuel and Jackson. He went to Philadelphia for a while. And then in 1978, as I was uh, starting my senior year, he retired and moved to Toledo, and he took, uh, which is in Ohio, and he took a, a, a part-time, he had a part-time call at a church um, in Toledo. So I hadn't seen from him or heard from him since he left when I was a junior in high school. The day after I graduated from Olivet College in Michigan, the real Olivet College in Michigan, the day after I graduated, um, I moved back to, you know, grandma's house in Jackson. And I went back to work uh, for National Bank of Jackson, where I was a summer teller. And when I got home that first day in the mail, there was a letter from Pastor Kaiser, whom I hadn't heard from. And as I said, telling me all of this, you know, what had happened in his life. And he was uh, writing me and telling me that the church that he was working part-time was looking for someone to ser uh, serve as a Christian education slash youth director for the church. And he knew that, and he knew my undergraduate degree was in elementary education. He knew I hadn't had any specific training for serving the church, but he wondered whether that would be something I would be willing to, um, you know, to um, consider. So I, I wrote him back and thanked him, you know, thanked him for writing and everything and said, no, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I, I haven't thought about serving the church. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to get a teaching job. Thank you very much. You know, have a nice day. And that was, um, that was in May. So I went back to work for the bank. And like I said, I was really, really very anxious to get a job. So I started filling out applications and sending them off and, and really wasn't getting any responses. So what I know now, and this is what, what I know now that I didn't know then. Um, if, I, if I could go back, you know, as my adult self now, um, you know, and tell my young college graduate um, self something, what I would say is something like this. Steve, I know that you want to be out on your own and you want to be an adult and you want to, you know, get a teaching job and get started. That's perfectly understandable. The first thing that you need to know is that school districts don't hire in May. <laughs> They're still finishing up their own school year. And then they go on summer vacation, just like your, you know, just like the kids do. Um, and so they really don't even start hiring or even thinking about that until the middle of August, till just before they go back to school. So even though you're in a place where you're very anxious and you're sending out these resumes and you're not getting anything, it's not because there's anything wrong with you or, or your skills or your abilities or your resume. It's that it doesn't work the way that you think it does. You're going to need to wait until August before you start hearing back. And then what I also would have said to my younger self is, and, and given the fact that there are no fewer than 11 different school districts with an easy driving distance of where your mom lives on Wisner Street, you know, there are going to be lots and lots of possibilities. And you may have to do a term sub, maybe like for a semester before you can get a permanent job, because that was what the market was like in 1978.
Michael, if there had been somebody to tell me those four simple things, just three or four simple things, my whole life would have turned out differently. But there wasn't anybody there to tell me all of that. And I, and I, and so I, <laughs> I flew out to Phoenix, Arizona and drove across the desert and interviewed at a school on an Indian reservation. And I was missing some class I needed for the state of Arizona. So that didn't work out. And I flew to Washington, DC and interviewed in Prince George's County, Maryland. And the only reason they gave me the time of day there was because their school district was so huge. that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Come on over. We'll, uh, you know, we'll interview you. Um, and we, it was getting, we were getting to August. It was uh, getting to maybe like the beginning of August. And um, I, I was, you know, just, I wanted to be out on my own, get a job and, you know, so on and so forth. So I thought, I wonder if that position at that church in Toledo is still open to me. Oh, it's probably not going to be, you know, that was May. They interviewed me in May and now it's August. So um I wrote a letter to Pastor Kaiser, and that's how we did things back then. We wrote letters, and then we put it on a piece of paper and put it in an envelope and then mailed it, because to call somebody, that would be like long distance. So a few days later, I got back the letter, and they had not filled that position. They had not filled it, um, so it was still open. Um, and so I you know, I went down to Toledo, and I really, really agonized it, because my, my sense of self, my sense of self and worth um, was tied up in what it meant to now be a college graduate and have a job. And, um, um, it, you know, if it was a Christian education, you know, position, you know, I wanted it to be, you know, something that I could learn or grow into or, um, you know, that would, that would, you know, fit my skills and abilities and um, that sort of thing. Um, so I interviewed um, and I got the job. Uh, and and it's, it's also amazing because when I was 22, I looked like I was 12. You know, I weighed maybe a buck twenty, soaking wet. You know, and uh, and I probably looked—I looked like younger than the kids. Um, and so I moved to Toledo. <laughs> um, you know, got an apartment in Toledo and started working. Um, in, you know, in in this uh, at a church. Now, here is the thing. So there was a senior pastor, and then Pastor Kaiser, who had been the one, um, you know, that had you know gotten me to come there. And I really thought that between the two of them, there would be some sort of like mentoring um, kind of relationship. And there wasn't. They had their their jobs to do. And, and they came from like my grandparents' generation where really, you know, it was all about, you know, you finding your own way. And, um, you know, and what I really quickly discovered was the idea of doing something for youth in a church um, is a very, you know, emotional and, and, and very, you know, high priority but in a lot of churches, nobody knows what that means. They just know they want to do something for the kids and they want the kids to have faith. And uh, so, you know, and we'll get a, we'll, we'll get a Christian education. I know it'll be a good idea. Let's get somebody who's only four years older than they are, you know, to, you know, who will be hip and young and lively, we, all of which I was, you know, and love Jesus and all of that. But as far as the shape of what that job, um, you know, was going to be, uh, it just sort of wasn't there. So there, you know, there I was when, once again, to just sort of make it up. And some of it, you know, you can figure out from, you know, going on retreats and, uh, you know, and, um, and, and, and figuring out Bible studies and activities for kids. I started this thing called weekday church club, which was the closest to like starting a school that I could for my elementary kids on Wednesday afternoon. You know, they came and we had like a little class and little recess and singing time and a meal. And, um, and, you know, so that took off pretty well. And, um, you know, I did uh, youth work you know, kind of the best that I could. Um, 
but but this is what that what you know what that job did is first of all it brought me to Ohio where our particular branch of the Lutheran church was much bigger than it was in Michigan. So Ohio had two, two Lutheran colleges, one in Springfield and one in Columbus, and had a seminary uh, you know, to train pastors um, in also um, in Columbus. Um, and, and so I sort of got an introduction to the fact that you know, the church was, you know, was a, a little bit bigger in Ohio. But one of the most significant things that happened was that at the end of that first year of that of that Christian education job, the senior pastor, not Pastor Kaiser, but the other one, came into my office one morning, and um, he didn't come into my office very much or have much hands-on anything to do with what I did, and he had a letter, and he said, here, he said, I, I got this in the mail today. He says, we have a summer camp in Mansfield um, that uses volunteers um, in the summertime to lead Bible studies and, you know, do things on I think you should consider doing this. And he threw it down on my desk. Um, I had never been to a summer camp or a Christian summer camp or any, I doubt, you know, that wasn't part of my um, childhood experience, but you know, you already know where this goes because, you know, and that summer then I, you know, I took the <laughs> curriculum and the, you know, the study book that we were supposed to be using and, you know, went down to Camp Moana and was introduced then to, you know, to uh, Christian camping, um, you know, in the Lutheran church. And, and you know, and Moana was very big and very huge, but it introduced me to, to uh, um, other people my age, some of whom were still in college or just out of college. And many of them were getting ready to study to be pastors, you know, at, at Trinity Seminary in Columbus. Many of them were young pastors who were the chaplains while I was what was called a discovery leader. So it's like, I got immersed into the first time of, of a whole group of other young Christians, young pastors, young people. And I discovered a couple of things. First of all, they had a lot of fun. You know, um, and the, the second thing was they weren't all serious as a heart attack. And the other thing was they weren't some kind of like fake pious either. It was just, you know, they, they were people who loved Jesus and who, and who embodied the love of Jesus in the, in this week, uh, you know, in what they did, um, you know, with the kids um, who came to camp. Um, and so um, that really, I mean, that kind of like really changed my outlook, um, you know, about what it meant, meant, you know, to sort of like, you know, even serve the church. So kind of like in a parallel way to the beginning of the story that I told you about, you know, coming to faith, there was kind of a parallel story that for a couple of years, I kept going back and volunteering at Moana and after two years in that first church job, I got an opportunity to teach in a Lutheran school, an actual Lutheran school. Now, it was a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school, which is not, you know, my um, particular brand of, of Lutheranism, but it was a school and it was an elementary teaching position. And so it was going to be an opportunity for me to, you know, sort of um, exercise the skills and the muscles and try out, um, you know, what I had trained in college to do. So it was just on the same side of town. And so in, uh, in uh, 1980, I moved from uh, one church, the Christian education and youth job to an elementary teacher. And I had first grade the first year that I taught and it nearly killed me. Um, and because once again, it was a very, very small school. They were only adding like one grade a year. So there was just first, I had first grade and then another teacher had second grade. And once again, there was no on-site principal the school board was all volunteers. The pastor was really was really very young, but he was busy being a pastor. 
And so once again, um, the whole experience of what this meant so the, and how I was going to live it out was left up to me to discover on my own. There were no mentor teachers. There was no principal. Um, you know, I, you know the, the story that I told was that they gave me a reading book and a math book. And those, that, that's the, the two books that we had for curriculum. And all of the rest of what you would do with first graders, I had to figure out on my own. So, um, so I did that for, you know, for two years. And during the two years I was at that church, I was still volunteering at, at Moana. And I met, um, there, was a young, there was a young pastor named Dean Stewart who would bring his kids to camp. He was, um, he was serving in, in Xenia, Ohio, down near Dayton. And he was a chaplain um, while I was a discovery leader, which was, you know, kind of a Bible teacher. And there was just a lot of time at camp, you know, you know, to pick other people's brains. And uh, um, so I remember that, you know, when the kids were having rest hour, we would sit up on the back porch of the lodge, you know, drinking a Coke, which was this, you know, that was the big, you know, privilege you could have as an adult was to use the Coke machine when the, you know, the kids couldn't. And we would talk about life. And so I remember um, you know, I, I, it was Dean Stewart was the first person that I said, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about maybe I might be called to, you know, called to the ministry, called to, you know, called to ordain ministry. What do you think about that? And he looked at me and said, I think you should try really hard to do something else. <laughs> and that, and that really hurt. Yes, yes. yes. that's that's the piece of advice that you've given yes. me so many times. Right. Yes, but but you remember the rest of the story was he wasn't trying to hurt my feelings. It, right. You know, it, but it was a lot of people, and I've, I've I've encountered a lot of people in my years of ministry because I've served on our our synod's candidacy committee, where where people are they they think that when they come to somebody else and say I think God is calling me to the ministry that the only right response responsible yes certainly go right ahead why would you not what a pious thing to do um but what uh, but what dean said to me was um he said you know the reason i think you should try hard to do something else is because there are lots of ways to serve jesus and live out your baptismal vocation in the world there are lots of ways to do that besides being a pastor and he said uh and, and being a pastor isn't for everybody and it's, it's hard and you really need to figure out, you know, uh, not just your own internal personal call, you know, but whether, you know, that's affirmed by the, you know, the, the, the rest of the church, you know, there's some other things you need to go through by just feeling like, you know, you, you want to serve God. And, you know, of course, by golly, he was right. You know, you know, he was right. You need, you need more than just a sincerity and a, and a sense that all you have to do is say that to people you know, I'm called to do it. And they will say, well, yes, by all, you know, by all means. Now there are some expressions of Christianity where that's all you have to do to be a pastor. You know, there are some where people just stand up and say, you know, God is calling me to do this. And as long as you can get a congregation to say, okay, yes, you know, we agree. Um, you can do it. And in, and in our expression of the church, there is some version of that, but your, your call being discerned and, and held up and sort of figured out belongs to the whole church at every level. It's what you think. It's what your home pastor thinks, people who knew you, the, you know, a candidacy committee, a seminary faculty, um, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of people who aren't, who aren't a group of, of, um, you know, them, you know, they're, they're not a group of just sort of like, you know, um, uh, 
anonymous them that are out to get you. They are also beloved children of God, you know, uh, who love Jesus and, you know, want what's best for the church and help in that process of discernment. Well, you know, all of which was lost on me, you know, when Dean said that, um, but he was, um, but he was right. So um, I, and I, and so I went back and um, I did another year of teaching and I, and I moved up from first grade to a third and fourth grade split. I had third and fourth grade together, still figuring out everything, you know, sort of on my own and everything, but I had a very good year that, you know, that second year, it was just a much, a much better year and still something, you know, made me think that, okay, I, even though I'm having a really good year teaching and everything, maybe this wasn't you know, maybe this isn't what God had in mind. And, um, and so I, in the spring of 1982, I applied at Trinity Seminary and I uh, was accepted. And then I had to go uh, to meet before a committee in Michigan because I, you know, moved my residency back to Michigan, um, you know, back to, uh, to grandma's house while I was uh, going to um, seminary. Um, And I was scared to death. I was scared to death. I was sure that I wasn't, you know, pious enough or smart enough or holy enough or anything enough to, uh, you know, to do that. Um, but I, you know, I, I started seminary in 1982 um, and met, you know, dear friends that I still have, you know, all these years later, um, um, you know, there were, there were still some connections. Some of those counselors that I had known uh, from Moana also, so went through, you know, uh, seminary at the same time um, um, that I did. And um, I can remember um, in my first year standing in Greek one class um, with uh, my friend who's now Pastor Connie Menser. We're all up on writing on the chalkboard, you know, writing blepo, blepes, blepe, blepetel, writing all these, you know, Greek words. In. Um, and they were renovating the seminary at the time. And so the heating system was kind of on the fritz. So the heat only had two temperatures on and off and it would be so hot in the classroom. So while the professor was going around checking everybody at the chalkboard, I would just kind of like step out into the hallway to get a, you know, just to get some, you know, air. And I remember stepping back in one time and saying to Connie, who are we kidding anyway? I said, we're, we're never going to get out of here. They're, they're never going to let us be pastors. They're, they're going to find out that we don't know anything about anything. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, much to my surprise, it, uh, it, it sort of didn't work out that way. So um, the, uh, uh, I don't know how, do you want me to go, you know, finish the, or stop so you can say some things or. Oh, well, I, I just think it, from an observation standpoint, it's again, it's, it's amazing to see this is that drawing. All right. And, and that's something that, you know, when I, when I was going to, to college, I was thinking, well, I guess I'll just dabble a little bit. I'll take a couple ministry classes here. And I, I kept, one of the things I kept I'm thinking to myself is I don't see myself as a, as a pastor. I see myself more as a teacher. I'd love to teach maybe at a collegiate level because I really like, I really started to appreciate theology. I really started to appreciate the instructional side of things. And, but I also liked speaking. I, I liked what pastors did. I basically liked all of the pomp and circumstance. And what I've told you is, is one of the pieces of advice that I had to ask from you early on. was like, what in the world do you do with pastoral care? I'm scared to death of having to go visit people in a hospital or, or perform a funeral or do a wedding. Like that's all the stuff I don't want to do. And I remember expressing this my freshman year and and after all that, I decided, you know, I'm like, no, that pastor, it's not for me. I don't have a calling. I have no desire to do that. 
Um, and I think even if I wanted to be a pastor, it'd be for all the right, the wrong reasons. I'd, I'd only want it for the, the adulation. And, and I was talking about selfish. Uh, grandma would have been ashamed. Uh, and, and it wasn't until later. But everybody, in, in your defense, everybody goes through that too. And, and everybody's scared to death about pastoral care stuff too. That's, that's every, anybody worth their salt is, especially if you're, if you haven't yet experienced yourself in any kind of way, any, any great personal tragedy, or even walking with someone who's, who's, who's been through that. Um, yeah. And, well, I, I've come to, to um, recognize uh, more of that. And I remember you, you were an anchor for me throughout all of that because of just the, it was the, the constant reminder of, like you're not, you're not that you, you said it much in a, in a much better way than this, but it's kind of like, you're not that important. Um, like that you're, you're going to be the person to get the questions. You're going to be the person to get the request, not because you have the so much insight and wisdom to offer, but it's because you're in the position. You're the one that in mm-hmm. a way is supposed to get that. And you shared with me, um, some advice about the same advice, uh, that, that, that gentleman had shared with you about, you know, try, maybe try as hard as you possibly can to do something else. And if you feel, still feel as if the Lord's calling you, you know, you're meant to do it. And, and now seeing this in this last nine months, what God's done in my life, those words, probably the most impactful thing I've ever heard because, Mm -hmm. because of that, this, this journey I've gone on, but it was, it was funny because everything that every single thing that I've tried to do in my church in this very brief first year of ministry that I'm in, I've tried to lessen Michael Crable's role, mm-hmm. uplift maybe the position and the the care and attention, but realize that I'm not that important as a person. I mm-hmm. I had to I spoke at North Adams Jerome High School yesterday at their baccalaureate. I kept it very brief. And I joke because no one wants to hear me talk anyway. Uh, and I am there. I was asked because somebody some there has to be a speaker at a baccalaureate. There's got to be a be some sort of something to be given. And I just, I try to take advantage of that. And at the back of my head was the advice of my uncle Steve of saying, it's not necessarily because you have all of these great things to offer. It's because you're in that position and, and you followed that up with, by saying, don't abuse that. Um, yeah. Don't, don't make it about yourself, but don't abuse that mm-hmm. privilege. And you, and you always spun it into the fact that it's a privilege. And when you are annoyed or when you don't want to do it, or you're thinking about, what you're going to say or how you're going to do something in the times of bereavement and sorrow, you said to me, well, who, what are you making it about? You're making, you're, you're making it less about the situation and more about yourself. And if that's not the Mm -hmm. definition of selfishness, I don't know what is. Well, and you know that, and that's, that's a, that's, that's good that you, that you sort of learned that. And that, and that's also part of the, of the, of the learning curve of realizing that, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it saying that, um, you know, it's, it, yeah, it isn't about us, but it doesn't mean that what we have isn't a value and worth. It's just that it's the, the, um, um, you know, like in the beginning, um, I always thought that the, that the, you know, the best pastoral skill you had was your, you know, your warmth and your winful, your winsomeness and your sincerity and all, you know, and your wonderful personality. And that the most important thing, and, and this would have to do in pastoral care situations and certainly in funerals, was my personal connection with the it, 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 being able to give care to somebody and being with them in an appropriate kind of way 
was not the same thing as having to have a personal history or a strong personal um, you know, connection in order to effectively proclaim the gospel, because that's what it is that we're called to do. And it doesn't mean that we don't give of ourselves and, you know, and, and be loving and caring. But, um, you know, there are a couple of a couple of things as you were saying that that came to mind. Um, I was I was very privileged that the first funeral I ever had as a pastor was a 95-year-old lady in Hillsdale County who had lived a very long and wonderful life and died very peacefully at, at 95 in a nursing home. But even and and with a with a very non-demanding family and it, you know it was it was ob- obviously an ideal, you know, situation for it being my first funeral. But still I remember when I sat down at the typewriter, which is what we used back then to, you know, to uh, uh, put type things out. I, I really had, um, I really had uh, writer's block, you know, I just had mental block. It just, how do you, what, you know, with my limited experience and everything, and, you know, I knew I was supposed to, you know, proclaim the gospel, but what, you know, what is this all about? And, and I sort of came up with this topic sentence, you know, as I was, as I was typing this, and um, I wrote the first sentence, sentence, and I said, we're here today to mourn the death, to celebrate the life, and to proclaim the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life for the lady's name. And then everything kind of flowed after that and everything. And, you know, I, I would say in the, in the beginning, I didn't realize I was doing this. But the next time I had a funeral, I kind of used that same opening line and then, you know, said some other things. And then I kind of, I, I, I don't remember how long it was, but I thought, you know, I'm going to use, I'm going to make that a signature thing of my preaching at funerals for the rest of my life and the rest of my ministry. When I do a funeral, I'm going to begin it that way. We're here today to mourn the death, to celebrate the life and to proclaim the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life for the person's name. And, and even though the shape of it can change, it really did give me the, it gave me the clarity of what I was supposed to be doing. And first of all, you know, especially these days, everybody talks about, you know, this is going to be a celebration of life. Yes, yes, it is going to be a celebration of life. But what it really is going to be is a funeral where the celebration of life is only one of the three things you have to do. Because we're going to mourn a death and we're going to hold up the reality of death. We're not going to run from it. We're not going to hide from it. We're not going to pretend like it's not there because that'll just give it more power. We're going to start by talking about death. And then, but we're not going to end there. And then we'll, then we'll celebrate the life. And of course, in situations where I've been somebody's pastor for a way long time, or I knew them or had a, um, you know, personal relationship, I can include that as part of what it means to celebrate their life. But I, if I didn't know them, then you can still have that be part of it. It can be, you know, things that families give you, or you can just, you know, hold it up and acknowledge it. And then the third thing is, we're here to we're here to uh, proclaim the sure and certain hope of the resurrection is a reminder to me that that's really the only reason a pastor's at a funeral, you know that we're not there because we're the best MCs, um, and, and and you you know you find out the reason that it's good to know that you're there to do that and to proclaim the gospel is because the culture tells you a lot of stuff, you know culture and funeral home and people do think that you're, you know, that a pastor is just an accessory that, you know, that goes along with, you know, doing funerals rather than somebody who's there to do those, those three things. And, it, and it's very interesting because now coming to the end of my ministry, and, and this is really kind of ironic. And in, in the last week, I have three, I've had three funerals since last Friday, 
I had two, I had one last a week ago, Friday, one a week ago, Saturday, and one this Saturday, all three of them were people that I didn't, that I didn't know, but had, and I've been here 23 years and they had some peripheral connection to Bethel, you know, maybe way, way before I even got here. And, you know, and it, it was the situation, you know, where the funeral director calls and says, you know, they'd like the pastor of Bethel Lutheran church, you know, and, and that used to really offend me. You know, it's like, I'm not, it's, I'm not, I'm me, I'm, you know, I'm pastor Crable, you know, they, they should ask for me if they want to you know, have me. And, you know, then I realized, you know, no, it really doesn't matter. They're just, they're asking for someone to come and proclaim the gospel. And can I do that? Yes, I can. Can I do that with somebody I haven't met or don't know? Yes, I can. I, I can proclaim the sure and certain hope of the resurrection for anybody. Um, you know, uh, and uh, and uh, so I just find that really, really very interesting. And I haven't had um, a call to do those kind of, of uh, uh, you know, kind of funerals of people who are on the periphery or, you know, used to go to the church 50 years ago. I haven't had any of those in a long time. And now, you know, 10 weeks before the end of my ministry here, I get three of them in a week. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think that is, is so important for, it doesn't even matter what denomination, but to, to take an approach like that. I mean, that, that's the gospel message. I mean, if we, if we can't, yes, the, the time for mourning Ecclesiastes even tells us about this, a time to mourn um, and time to rejoice uh, and time to live a time to die. And if we don't, properly mourn we know we've seen devastating effects from that and if we don't celebrate the fact that hey yes it's a sad thing but the reason why we're sad is because of all the good you know if mm-hmm. you'd hate to go to a funeral of a loved one that you just don't miss i mean that's yeah. that's kind of like a, a fear for probably a lot of people they they want to be yeah. missed and then at to top it all off it's like oh hey by the way this is a sad day mm-hmm. but it's not a bad day and the reason why we can say that is because of our, our belief and Jesus and his conquering of the dead, that, that sister or brother so-and-so will be made alive and be restored and new. And I don't know, and I don't know if we emphasize the latter point enough. It's, it's part of pretty much every funeral that I've, that I've gone to, but when the family is Christian and there's been a lot of connections, I, I wish there was more emphasis on the celebration of the life and just the reminder that we'll see this person again. And usually it's just set as a platitude amongst the people, but from, but from a top down approach, it's something I, I have so much respect for. And I I just admire Mm -hmm. the words that God gave you that many years ago, uncle Steve, because that's something I'm going to use when that, when that day, when that day comes, because it's like, again, Paul says, you know, if if we're, we we preach uh, Christ resurrected, but if he's not resurrected, then we are wasting our lives here. Well, and you know, it's it, hearing you say that it just, it reminds me that that's, that's the danger of inserting, you know, inserting yourself. If you think you, you, it has to be your own winsomeness or your own connection or your own knowledge of the person that can come off as very false and very tinny. If you try to, when you didn't have the connection of saying, we all remember, you know, when Joe did this or that, or the other thing, and the people that, you know, at the funeral, no, you don't know the first thing about it. And, you know, it's really very interesting. The flip side of this you know, if, if it took me a long time to get past the idea that it had to be about my winsomeness and, you know, warmness and, you know, connection, you know, that, that being Pastor Crable means that I can go there and preach the gospel. The opposite challenge is when you have family members that because you're a pastor, want 
ask you to come and do, you know, a, a relative, you know, a relative's funeral. And then they don't get that difference. And you go to proclaim the gospel and, and your, and your relatives are shocked because, and dismayed a little bit and maybe a little disappointed because they wanted you to be a little Steve, you know, they, or they want, or they wanted you to, you know, or they wanted you to be winsome and warm and tell stories, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And there is a, so, so what's very interesting is that that's a very valid thing. That's what a eulogy is. A eulogy is where you can stand up and say, you know, something, you know, wonderful about the person that, you know, you loved and everything. And, you know, people do that. They, you know, they give eulogy, but a eulogy is not preaching the gospel. And that's not what you, it can be part of it, but that's not what you have a, a, a pastor to, you know, do. And, you know, even when grandma died um, and, you know, we were putting the service together and I remember talking, you know, to your, you know, to your dad and, and to Aunt Jody about how we were going to, you know, do this. I said, well, how about if you let me, you know, I'll put, I'll put the, you know, put the funeral together. Um, and, and it isn't that they pushed back against that. I said, well, you know, we're going to want to, maybe the kids will. And so I, I said, you know, can you, can you step outside of yourself and trust that I know how to, that this is like, I know how to do this job. Yes. I, you know, I, I know how to, I can plan a few, who else, who else can you imagine doing mom's funeral? Who else, you know, who else are we going to get? Yes. There will be, you know, there will be room for anybody, you know, I, I'll shape it so that the kids can be readers, you know, how Brian, you know, spoke and all the other kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, and your dad gave a, you know, very beautiful and, you know, wonderful eulogy. And I remember after, you know, we agreed that, you know, that that's how we were going to shape it. Um, and I was sitting down and, re and remembering, you know, as I was sitting down at my computer thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is my mother. This is my mother. I better come up with, boy, I better come up with some whiz bang, something the likes of which nobody's ever seen in all of recorded history to prove that it was my mother and the, how much I loved and the something. And I sat down at my computer and I wrote, we're here today to mourn the death, to celebrate the life and to proclaim the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life for Rosalind Mary de Bruyler Cradle. Um, and so, you know, I, you know from, from my own perspective, I did what I needed to do that, that day. Um, you know, I, I preached the gospel and I put in the, in the, in the middle of it, um, the, um, uh, you know, some personal, you know, uh, reflections, uh, you know, but, but I remember the, uh, the experience of our aunts and uncles that day was that, you know, they, they, they much more resonated with, you know, with what your dad said, because, you know, it, because it, it was deeply personal to him. So was what, so was what I said, but the whole theological points of mourning the death and proclaiming the sure and certain hope didn't resonate with a lot of people. They just wanted to hear like the, you know, the personal stuff, which was fine, but that was not all I was there to do, even, even for grandma, even, you know, for my own mom. So I, you know, I kind of wonder like that when, uh, you know, um, it's been a while um, since I've been asked to do somebody else's, you know, member of the family's funeral, but, you know, I often think about that. Well, um, if I did, you know, what do they want me to be? Is it, is it because at the MC, do they want me to give a eulogy? Um, and um, when 
I had the privilege when Alice Wilsey, the neighbor across the street, you know, that gave me the invitation, um, uh, she died two years ago and the family asked me to do a eulogy. And that was wonderful because the pastor that day was the one who preached the gospel. And then I was able to, like a lot of other people, stand up and say the very personal things, you know, that I remembered, and, you know, the, which, which also included, you know, bringing me to Christ and, you know, leading me, you know, a particular way. But it was, it was kind of nice to be able to be the one you know, that, that could just say, um, you know, I'm going to leave to the pastor here, you know, to, to preach the gospel this morning. I'm just going to tell you about this, you know, the special woman and, you know, what she meant for my life. So, so that's a perfectly valid thing. And I was glad that I got to do it, but, um, you know, that's not what, uh, a pastor's job is at most funerals. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, you almost bring tears to my eyes because just being able to still proclaim the truth in the midst of, of grandma's, um, grandma's uh passing you know it's funny uncle steve and, and for the people that that don't that don't know my grandmother that are listening to this you know it, it is something it's perplexing it's the the mystery of god that you know you you've mentioned it but from my relationship with grandma you know she was never somebody that was you know religious didn't very much continued um that that uh, lack of attention for, for religion. However, I know that um, close to a couple of weeks before she died, when she went to the hospital for the last time, she, she told me, you know, that she had made her peace with God. And um, I, I knew because I asked her about church, you know, as an inquisitive young man myself, I, I'd ask like, what, why doesn't grandma Rose go, go to church with my family? And I it's just, just always a, a question, but I, I'll tell you, she lived out the gospel more than what I see most Christians do because the way she loved her neighbors um, she was you, very Christ-like, that's for sure. <laughs> and seeing how she loved people and was very fair to people and, and did not discriminate, um, is, it was the, one of the biggest testimonies to me as a kid. And, you know, I, and we're, now we're you know, several years, we're almost, I mean, nine years now uh, from, her, from her passing. I, I miss her more today than I, than I did three, four years ago. And one of the beautiful things about that is that there are a lot of um, old elderly women in my, in my church down in North Adams, and they remind me a lot of grandma because mm -hmm. not just because they're really good cooks and bakers, but it's just from that generation of very, uh, very much kind hearted. And yeah. I just find myself clinging to them. Uh, and sure. I, I was just able to, to verbalize this with my mother yesterday um, of thinking that you know, like I, the reason why I have so much affection for Deb and for Jackie and for Helena and for Janice and for Bonnie, you know, I, I find myself like, I see grandma in them. And, um, and then it came to a realization that I, I've, I've joked that the average age of my con congregations deceased already, uh, because of how old they all are. And I was yeah. thinking, I don't know how God will have, how long God will have me at this place, but mm. it, it could be very well that I, I could bury most of these people. And sure. that thought is humbling. is not strong enough a word. It's terrifying. Mm. Uh, it's mm. humiliating in a way. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, like how in the world did my uncle Steve do that? for his own mother. And mm -hmm. cause like, there's no way I could do that with my parents and I'd barely be able to do it with these, these people that I've come to love and only known for a short while. Mm -hmm. But then I realized again, mm -hmm. it's about me. <laughs> it's about what I would want. It's a, like, well, there's the, the idea mm -hmm. of, of Christ, 
is, is like farther down the list. So I guess my question is somebody who has that many years of experience, especially when it comes to, to funerals, is there any, any room for the self and what you want for preferences and, and stuff in, in the f- planning of a funeral? I think, um, um, you know, certainly in the, and once again, keeping in mind what your, what your um, role is, and that is, you know, you're there to proclaim the gospel and you're there to facilitate having that happen. And within that, you know, as a pastoral thing, you can, you know, be all kinds of accommodating to what kind of hymns and things and stuff, you know, that people want to do. And, and certainly funeral home uh, uh, services are very different than ones that you have in the church, you know, because the message, if, if a funeral is in your church, then really it is. that's grounded in the idea that, you know, you're coming here because this meant something to you or proclaiming the gospel means something to you um and within that you know you have some control over what you know hymns and songs and and what's appropriate although that's a you know <laughs> you'll come up with some real uh, come up with some real challenges over the years about you know what people you know wanted you know as over as opposed to what was appropriate and and you know people when they're grieving you know are it, it, you know it's a very vulnerable moment and you have to you know not necessarily tread lightly but you have to tread carefully you know around that and decide you know what's what you're willing to you know, uh, let go for the sake of something that would be comforting and, you know, something that you want. And usually my experience, my experience is, is if I get the last word, you know, that I make sure that whatever other people that one thing is that if other people are going to talk or do something, I make them go before me so that the last thing that happens is that they hear me, um, you know, proclaim the gospel. But when you were mentioning grandma, I was thinking of there's uh, you know, the, the, you know, the one thing of it is, even though it is terrifying, it, it is terrifying, especially, you know, from the perspective of, you know, not having had it happen, you know, in a lot of different ways. But Michael, I'll tell you, it's one of the most holy things you can ever have happen. You know, I, I, you know, one of the greatest gifts, I, I, I think of my life and one that I didn't, um, that I didn't look for, or, you know, it, it just happened was that I got to be with both of my parents when they died. You know, that, that was one of the, the, it was the most difficult thing I ever had to do in my life, in my life. And at the same time, it was, it was one of the holiest moments too. And um, you balance that by the fact that, you know, as, as I was sitting there, you know, when, when grandma took her last breath, uh, you know, as, as, as powerful it was to be able to be there, you know, in that, you know, in, in present, in that moment, it was very important for me that, you know, it, it, it she wasn't alone. I mean, she wasn't, nobody is, you know, is ever alone, but that, you know, that your dad and I got to, got to be there. But then I was also remembering that in the week before she died, when we first knew that things weren't good and, you know, your dad called Aunt Jody and me up to, you know, up to Michigan to be there. I remember I got to the hospital and there had been, they were sure, or was it, oh, grandma was telling me the story. She said, well, you know, she says, when I first got here, uh, she said, they sent a chaplain in, you know, and she said, uh, you know, the chaplain said, well, is there anything I could do for you? Do you want me to pray for you or something? <laughs> that's something probably didn't say it like that, but that's probably how she recounted it. And she says, no, I told her, no, my preacher's on his way, which meant me, you know, that I was on my way. So when she told me that, I thought, oh, I felt so strangely moved by the fact that she would, you know, that she would refer to me that way that, you know, the, 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 the chaplain had asked her to, you know, to uh, pray and all that. And she said her preacher was coming because was really very very clear you know it, you know in good ways 
that, you know, to the, I always say, I always say most of my family has treated my pastor as being this, as this eccentric hobby that I have while in between my doing the other important things that I do of being their brother and son and uncle, you know, that sort of thing. But so I was so moved by the fact that, you know, she had said, no, my, you know, my preacher's on his way. And I said, in a moment of vulnerability, I said, oh, I said, well, that's nice. I said, would you like me to pray with you, mom? And she went, well, go ahead. <laughs> and I said, well, don't do me any favors. I said, I don't, I said, I don't have to, I don't, I don't need to pray with you if you don't want me to. I just thought it's just fine. We're all just, you know, we're all just fine. I told somebody later, I said, you know, thought I was going to give her a shot or something like that. But uh, anyway, that was just, a, yes, no, I don't have to pray for you. It's all, I'm praying for you anyway. I don't have to say anything out loud, you know. Yeah, and that was grandma. That was grandma through and through too. And, uh, and it's amazing the testimony of certain people who don't go to church who can still carry carry the 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 cross well. Um, and then for somebody that you know wasn't, I would say a, a confessing Christian, what you would see maybe traditionally from a lot of people every day talking about the good the good word. Um, she is somebody that I, I truly believe uh, we will see her again someday at the resurrection of the righteous. And um, I'll never forget those lessons that, that she um, had taught me. And whether it was through uh, her kindness, generosity, or through her discipline too, couldn't get away with a lot of things with grandma. She was much more generous to us grandchildren though uh, than, yeah. than her own. Um, but you know, a lot of these things that you're sharing, Uncle Steve, the, these are, these are experiences. This is wisdom that's been learned over the course of 35 years of doing this tremendous calling. And I don't want the podcast to go any further without just saying thank you personally, uh, not just for our relationship, but thank you for your service to the church as a, as a once congregant for so many longs now pastor, but thank you for somebody who has done that um, because it is, it is a arduous journey. It is, is difficult. Not many people uh, can relate to uh, the fact it was, well, how, how can you be so tired? Like, I don't understand how you're so busy. You're, they don't see the physical work uh, because they don't understand the spiritual weight and the heaviness that, that it brings because uh, the burden, the burden is very unique. And, and one of the questions I had was when we were doing our, our pre-show meetings was just like, what are some things that you would pass on? And, and, and that's such a, such a cheap and easy question to, to ask uh, because I think people have heard uh, just some of your wisdom here, because it's not something you could learn in a textbook. It has to be done through experience. But, you know, as you look back over the, these 35 years of, of ministry, not just someone such as myself, but other, my friends who are, who are newer pastors, um, what are some, what are some of the things that it, it took you a while to learn or, or stuff that you could only learn by just doing it? You couldn't, you just, no matter how much people told you about something, it just was different when you experienced it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That's a, that's an, an intriguing question there. You know, there are a couple of things that, um, you know, that um, are called the call to mind. Um, one is because in the, in the expression of the church that I serve in, in the Lutheran church, you know, uh, specifically in the ELCA and the LCA before that, which stands for Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and Lutheran Church in America before that, um, the structure of how you become a pastor is connected to reminders and touch points along the way of what your call is and what it isn't. Um, so on my wall in, in my office, my ordination certificate, 
highlights the words word and sacraments that I'm there, that, that, that that's, that's my call. That's my, my, you know, um, doesn't put me above anybody else, but that's, that's the thing I'm set apart for is to be about a word and sacrament ministry. And so that there's a, there's a lot of other things that I have to be involved in administratively. Um, but, but really what, what my, it's, it's to remember the core of what your call is. And that is, you know, that is to proclaim the gospel through word and sacrament and everything else that you do needs to be, you know, filtered through that. Um, and the second thing is, um, when I was a first-year seminary student, they did this in, in, in our system. You go to school or a, a, a Master of Divinity is a four-year program. At that time, it, it, it went like this. You did two years on campus, and then you went out for one year as an intern, where you spent one solid year serving in a church and whatever community they, they sent you to. And then you came back from that year of internship and you came for your senior year at seminary. And then in a lot of, you know, senior year was taken up with talking about what you learned on internship and, you know, how and, and we actually had a class called senior integrative because it, you know, um, um, you know, uh, put to integrate what you had, um, what you had learned on internship from what you learned in seminary. So, um, uh, when we met together in, in small groups, one of the first exercises they did every fall was that the returning interns who were now seniors would, you know, impart the wisdom that they had learned from a grand total of one year of being out in the parish, you know, for us young pups who were just, you know, starting in our first year. And I remember there was a young woman um, who was uh, in, in the small group the, um, that I was in. And she said something which at the time just seemed the most, you know, sort of like empty, pious, platitudinal kind of thing. And, you know, when she was asked what was the most important thing that she thought she would impart to us, she said, whatever else you do, love the people. If you don't do that, she said, all the rest of it, you know, just doesn't, uh, doesn't matter at all. Whatever else you do, love the people. Um, and like I said, I thought, oh, that's you know, just sounds like a pious platitude and everything. But you know, by golly, it turns out that she was right, even though she only had learned that from you know one year of being on internship. Um, I, I would say that that really is an important, uh, uh, if the not the most important thing. You know, even Jesus said, you know, said that. You know, what what are the what's the most important command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And so, the most important thing about being a pastor is if is not whether you love God or whether you even love Jesus, but you better be able to love God's people because people are hard to love. People are, you know, it's, it's not easy to love people. Um, and, it, and, and you're one of the people sometimes who it will not be easy to love. Um, and, and so if you don't remember that, you know, if you don't remember the greatest commandment, you know, that, that Jesus came, that gave, you know, to loving God, you know, and, 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 and loving your neighbor, then you're really not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to make it. You're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to last because um, it's hard, um, you know, I'm repeating myself, but you know, loving people is hard. And sometimes you will be one of the people that it's also hard to love. And if you can remember that and still love people anyway, um, then it becomes one of the most powerful ways 
of God showing up despite everything that you may plan or not plan or do or not do. It's one of the most powerful things is to just sort of get out of the way um, and see where God will show up if you just try to love God's people. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. I mean, that's basically First Corinthians thirteen, and especially as the as the shepherd of the flock. If you if you're not exhibiting love, well, how in the world is the church going to learn how to exhibit love to one another too? Um, so, thank you very much for that. And uh, and really, I guess um, it's kind of been building to this because now that it's been made public, I'm curious how the reaction's been from your church from your your. Uh, retirement announcement. I got, obviously you, you sent the official letter out to the family, but I, well, I've known for quite some time and my family has known, but how, how has the reception been to that? And then I guess ultimately what's next for you? What is it? What does the pastor do after 35 years? What, what's the identity? What are the challenges and what's the new adventure like? So I guess it's a, it's a two-part question here in closing. Okay. Well, uh, so uh, the, the reaction so far has been, uh, been pretty minimal. Um, I got, you know, a, a couple of a um, uh, couple of very nice emails and, a, you know, a couple of texts initially in the first um, uh, day and a half. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people sort of knew that it was, you know, coming, but, you know, when exactly they didn't know. I, I think in, in one way, um, it's sort of um, uh, over, not overshadowed isn't the word because that makes it sound like a bad thing. It's sort of. Um, being put next to the fact that we're getting ready to go back inside for worship after having not done that for over a year. Um, you know, we're still doing worship in the parking lot. You know, we had a confirmation there yesterday. I've got a baptism coming up in a couple of weeks. So there's a lot of excitement about us uh, coming together and getting back inside and what that's going to look like. And um, um, our preschool has graduation this week and all that sort of thing. So, so I, you know, I, I think that's, weighing mostly on you know on, on folks minds and they know that it isn't until the end of July you know because I've sort of made you know made that um as far as what I'm you know what I'll do oh so so I'm sure that um I'm sure that as we get closer and as you know we get to that you know the, that last Sunday um once we've gotten inside the church you know that things will shift to you know our being able to say goodbye you know to one another after after 23 years um and in the letter that I sent, um, I used the image of seasons of my life. That was the thing that I had been thinking about in, uh, you know, seasons that I had been called on to, um, you know, care for other people um, um, in my life. Um, and uh, uh, those had been, you know, uh, from very uh, specific for a specific season of care for someone who either, you know, needed to grow up or, or <laughs> grow old. Um, and, uh so that was the that was the kind of thing that got me to reflecting about how that that now was the season to be able to you know retire and and from this call and that it was that the season was ripe and it would be good for the congregation too you know at this point a good season for them you know to sort of find out what's next but to answer your question um, apart from um, trying out being a snowbird which I'm which I'm going to do. 
I'm going to Florida uh, in the, in this next winter uh, for January, February, and March. I'm in a different place each month. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not leaving Berea. Um, as I also said to the folks in my, in my uh, retirement letter, it's not for nothing that I have referred to my comfortable suburban home these past 23 years, and it's paid off in about two weeks. <laughs> so um, I'm planning on staying here. And um, uh so I know that I'm going to go, you know, south for one winter just to, to see what that's like. Um, you know, and I, and I have this image in my head that at least the first winter, the novelty of having, you know, people like you and Nick and Ben and Kristen and friends, you know, that might want to come down and, and visit for a week um, may play itself out, you know, this first winter. But I also need to see what it's going to be like to actually live there and not just be on vacation. Um, so I'm looking, you know, for places that are near churches and, you know, places where I can, you know, find a community of faith. But then, um, you know, back here in Berea, um, you know, there are, uh, as things open up after the pandemic, um, you know, there are volunteer opportunities. There are plenty of opportunities for me to still serve the church as an interim pastor or, a, a, you know, a, a supply preacher, um, which they probably won't ask me to do much in the first year. But after that, if I you know, feel a need to still you know, serve the church in that, in that capacity, I still could. Um, I could go back to being a red coat at Playhouse Square, be a volunteer usher there. But for a lot of it, Michael, I don't know. The answer to the question is I, I have no idea. And it's both, it's both exhilarating and terrifying. When, uh, you know, when I've told you that I've uh, enjoyed the structure in my life, um, uh, you know, all, all the way back from elementary school, to being, I like the seasons that, you know, that <laughs> there's the seasons of the church year, um, the seasons of the traditions that we've developed um, at Bethel over the years. Those have been very much a part of the fabric of, um, of my life. Um, and so leaving that all behind is going to be you know, hard. And, and, and some of those ministries have come to an end, you know, Camp Moana got sold a couple of years ago. It's been turning it into a nature preserve. Um, so, you know, we're at a point where, where a lot of the things that I did at Bethel are, you know, coming to a natural end for, you know, for those seasons. So having had that happen for all these years, what it's going to look like for everything to just be so open-ended is, you know, as I said, it's exhilarating and it's terrifying, but, but, you know, the, the, you know, I, I've lived under the truth that if I just got out of the way and wait to see where God will show up, God will, <laughs> um, you know, in ways that I, in ways that I don't expect. So, so I'm looking forward to it. Well, I am too, because I, I hope to, uh, to visit, like you said, um, I hope to be a part of, of that, uh, that part of your journey. And there's some, certainly something I could be uh, praying for, um, because it is, it's a, it's a new thing. And, um, I, I am very, very proud of you. I am very joyful, uh, filled with joy, um, to see how you have faithfully, uh, executed that calling and done it so very well and faithfully, um, to your congregations. And you know, it's just really cool. Also, to walk in the footsteps of another Crable uh, preaching in Hillsdale County, Michigan, knowing that I'm the second one. I got big, big shoes to fill. And uh, I, I'm just so incredibly, um, so incredibly blessed to have you part of my life. And I know that um, the Hillsdale community, as well as uh, your congregation, Bethel Lutheran, uh, have been so blessed by your faithfulness and, and your service to the church. So I, I truly, um, the listeners of this podcast, as well as my family and myself, wish you uh, the best. Um, when it comes to your future and 
it's going to be great. I, and uh, what an adventurous time uh, to start something new for you. And uh, I'm with you every step of the way there, Uncle Steve. I, I hope to, uh, to, to be down there in Florida and hopefully we could take a couple trips together uh, here and there. Thank you very much for those kind words. I appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome, Uncle Stephen. Thank you so much for, for your time here on the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. I hope um, that you take care of yourself and you'll just have to come back and return to, to the show at some point, okay? We'd be very happy to do that. All right. Thanks, Uncle Steve. Hope you have a good night. You too. Thank you so much to my Uncle Steve for his time, energy, insight, wisdom. Always sense of humor there, too. When you have a crable, you always have a little bit of goofiness from time to time. I know that if my Uncle Steve listens to this outro, he'll probably text me and say, now, young man, I don't know about goofiness or something. But, hey, I got to speak from my experience. And I'm, I've just been so blessed to have him in part of my life over the years. And now that I'm a pastor, it's amazing to see the conversations that we've had, how they have been blessed by God because it was for future, future reference and just to be able to glean from my Uncle Steve and his 35 years of experience, I felt it'd be something that you all would like to listen to as well. So thank you so much for listening to this. Thank you for the continued support, really. Just support now and in the future. It just means the world to me. And if you ever want to email the show, offer some advice or suggest a topic, feel free to email us at wsnspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much. And may God bless you and may God keep you.